Welcome to season three of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 45, Hellboy the Board Game. Today, we are joined by James Hewitt and Sophie Williams, the co-designers of Hellboy the Board Game, published by Manic Games, and the co-founders of MediCat Games. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask how you got into the de- uh, design community, but first, I just want to tell the audience I'm excited to have James and Sophie on because James was actually one of my mentors when I first got into the gaming industry. And if anyone is following my success, a large part of it is due to him. So, oh, thank you. I mean, <laughs> you, you you were inspirational from the start. I mean, I think you were the one of the first people I, I mentored through the mentorship program, um, which people should definitely check out. It's incredible. Um, but it was just like you had you you've always had such kind of drive to get things done and it's so awesome to have watched your progress and your career take off so so it's all you you know i can can take no credit at all all right well you're you're like a topping on my pizza that we'll say there we go beautiful well then how did both of you get into the industry then now you're asking well i think there's a Two different questions, really. There's uh, how do we get into the industry and how do we get into game design, I think, are two different things, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, okay. James, you've probably got a more straightforward answer to this, so I'll let you go first. <laughs> I, it's quite telling that mine is more straightforward, even though mine is not straightforward, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, so like, so for me, really, the I'd always wanted to design games. I'd wanted to do it for my entire life, and uh, I designed games as a kid. Our family had a lot of board games growing up. Um, and so when I was about 20, I started working for games workshop who they do a lot of big miniatures games and things. They've got a retail wing and I worked in their shops for a long time. Um, and that's kind of, I've made a lot of friends through it. And it's one of the ways that me and Sophie met, we we kind of met in multiple different ways at once. Um, but we, uh, all the time I was working there, I was thinking one day I'd like to design the games that I'm selling. And so I was always kind of pushing towards that. And um, to to kind of make a very long story quite short, I ended up um, working uh, kind of through the connections I had from that. I I had a a possibility to work on a game for Mantic Games, who published Hellboy. And I, through working on that as like a freelancer, I got in with them, ended up working for them as a community manager. And then that sprouted into a full-time game design job with Games Workshop. And I've kind of just sort of pinballed around in that sort of fashion. And... All the, all the way through, like the drive has been, I want to make games that people enjoy. That's that's what I've I've wanted to do, and and yeah. Now in 2017, I left Games Workshop, set up Needy Cat. Sophie came aboard almost immediately. I mean, you're always there in the background, right? So then you kind of came on full time. Uh, what what was your side of the story? Oh right, okay. So uh, when I was in my 20s, I started working for Games Workshop in the stores, and I worked there for several years, uh, about five years, I think, just under. Um, and I became a store manager and then I did a load of other stuff like staff training and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that gave me a really good overview into like the, the business side, I suppose, of what tabletop games can be. I'd always been a fan of tabletop games as a hobbyist, but then that was really interesting just to give me an insight onto the other side of the coin. Um, then we moved to Nottingham cause we were living in London at the time. Uh, and I got a job in the Games Workshop design studio um, as a 
art coordinator. So I basically did all the scheduling for like freelancers and in-house artists and was the person who sort of managed all the communication with all the freelancers and did all of that jazz. So that was very, very eye-opening about uh, project management and all of that sort of jazz. Um, And it was always in the tabletop sphere, but not necessarily directly to do with design. But I was always design adjacent because in the background, I was playtesting all of James's games and sort of James chatted about it a lot. So I was sort of adjacent to it that whole time. Uh, Fast forward a little bit further. um, I worked then in the licensing department for Games Workshop for a few months on a secondment. And then uh, I joined Needy Cat Games soon after that when um, James started Needy Cat Games. I sort of jumped on board. And originally I was there as much more of a project coordinator um, and I did like a lot of the the sort of the admin-y parts. So it was like play test I suck at that. I'm yeah. terrible at stuff. <laughs> oh, so I was, get you. I'm not yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like I did all the like organizing play tests and making prototypes and uh having conversations with uh clients about delivery dates and scheduling that all in and then it just got to a point where we were getting more and more and more work and we didn't really want to say no to it being self-employed um anyone out there who's been a freelancer will empathize with that so then I just started taking on like development jobs where it was like oh we need a load of content writing and James gave me loads of training and I started putting a lot of effort and time into learning how to do game design. I mean, it is a skill like anything else and you can learn it. It's not just like I am inherently good at this thing. So therefore I will go and do it, which some people are, and that's great. But I just decided that we needed to, you know, we sort of mutually decided that we needed to up our sort of output. So well, it was mainly, it was Hellboy, right? Because the Hellboy Kickstarter went very big and suddenly we needed to create a whole load of stuff. I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail, but it was, that was the thing really that was like, we need, we need another person. And Sophie was like, Mm. I can make a whole load of content for this game. Yeah, well, I mean, I had been doing some development work before that because we did like a small uh, Yes, you're right. Um, But it was like the first big thing where it was like, oh, yeah, we absolutely don't have to. We don't have the capacity if I don't do it. But, yeah, I mean, I did, I think, half of the uh, scenarios in the core game. You designed the core engine, didn't you, James? And then yeah. Uh, and then I just wrote content for, I think, nine months, pretty much back to back, because the Kickstarter went so big. Hellboy um, was your second child. It was. It was my second child. It <laughs> took as long to, you know, to make. Um, and it, I just wrote so much stuff for it and got really familiar with the mechanics and, like, just the, the concept of it and the core engine. And then James has worked on it sort of since doing additional content Um like uh Krampus and all of that sort of stuff so it's really Hellboy really is a brilliant example of how we've collaborated on a project because there was definitely back and forth between us through that whole time that is amazing and I can confirm that Kickstarter edition is a chunky boy it takes up a lot of space (laughs) yeah it really it's huge although they were they were very careful to make sure if you turn it sideways it does still fit on a Kallax shelf which Mm. is you know that, that's the standard, right? The Kallax is the way forward. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, here, why don't we switch gears and you two can explain how you play Hellboy Ooh. to anyone who hasn't played. Ooh, how do you play Hellboy? So Hellboy, what is Hellboy? Hellboy is a... Um, uh, some people call it like a dungeon crawling game. It's not. It's, a, it's it's an adventure game. I would say an invent an adventure investigation game. Yeah, I would say exploration, but it's basically exploration. Yeah, there's an element of exploration, isn't there? So mm. the whole point of the game is that you have this this uh, modular board that you lay out 
and uh, you are playing. For anyone who isn't familiar with Hellboy in general, um, you're kind of you're doing like supernatural investigations, big monsters and demons and things, and you. Whilst you each... also being supernatural demons and things. There is also this, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that's the that's the twist. And each player has one character, and the characters all have a whole bunch of like unique abilities and skills and things. And you're basically investigating this this area, whatever it is. And the the game is run through a, a deck of cards called a case file deck. And it's one of those things where it's a deck of cards that's, that's in a particular order, and you read the top one, and when it tells you to flip it, you flip it. So you're kind of playing through the deck, and various things come out of that. So the game kind of reacts to what happens. Um, one of the things I think is most key about Hellboy is it's a miniatures game. You're fighting monsters and things, but we really wanted it to feel like there's a lot of teamwork. There's a, like a conversation mm-hmm. around the table. Um, and so, for example, in the the hero's turn, when it's you know the agent phase, when when you get to do your things, there's no set like turn sequence. You can you each have three actions to make, and you can make them in any order you like. So those actions will let you do things like move around, investigate things, you know, fight monsters. But we wanted to make lots of interplay between the characters. There's lots of like synergistic abilities and then let the players really think about, you know, the best order to do those things in. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the most important thing is the game runs effectively on a, on a timer. So you have a thing called the uh, the impending doom track, which is a suitably grandiose name, and it ticks up every turn. And other things can make it tick up quicker. And when it hits the end, uh, a big boss battle happens, a confrontation. Because we notice that the Hellboy stories generally end with a big cataclysmic something. Lots of punching happens, um, and so we wanted to kind of have that in the game. Um, but the important thing is, you will get to the confrontation one way or another. If you if you're defeated, then you kind of wake up, and now it's the confrontation. If you get there early then, yeah, great. This, this is the confrontation. You've got an advantage. If the timer runs out, well, it's the confrontation. So each game ends on a high. You have like a cool finale. It doesn't just end, oh, we lost all our hit points. Now now the game's over. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably in a nutshell about as, as, as succinct as I can be on Hellboy. That was very elegant, James. Well done. Yeah, I was going to say, and now I'm going to ask very specific questions and completely wreck everything you just said. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Beautiful. So uh, as far as starting up the game, you're going to be setting up case files, which I think is really cool because very thematic. Uh, how yep. many case files are in the game? And also, how do you set those up? Oh, there's six in the core game. Six in the core game. Um, probably... And the expansions... Sorry, go on. Depends. No, I was going to say, I, I think it depends. I think there's about three per expansion off the top of it's my head. two to three per expansion. And then there's also an expansion, which is the um, BPRD Archives. That's the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense from the Hellboy Comics. The Archives, which is like a, it's a, it's a remix deck. It lets you kind of uh, create custom case files. There's an endless supply of things you can do there. And the expansions add new cards into that as well. But, I mean, for the core game, the core retail box game, there are six case files. And as Soph said earlier, she designed, I think, four of those. I did, I did two. Three. three. I think I did three and you did three. three. I think all, okay. well, maybe it was four and two. Maybe we'll it's, split the I difference. Mean, maybe one of them we did as teamwork. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, well, you're really taxing us here, Danielle, because, um, I mean, this was some time ago for us now. I, I can't even remember, like four years, maybe? 2018, yeah. You're so good. Four yeah, years. Let's skip to not how many, but just how do you set up a case file? Like, how do you get let's started it, yeah. on this game? So um, what you do is you you get this the, the deck of cards. So you have this case file deck. And when you first open the game, these are sealed in little like, plastic um, like, uh, like little plastic packs, like buying a Magic the Gathering booster deck or something. Um, and, you, you know, it says, uh, you know, do not read this side, read this side. 
And so you open it up, you peel it open, and the front of it gives you a little bit of like typewritten text, you know, the, the intro, the, the briefing you'd be given before you leave HQ. Um, and it will then instruct you how to set things up. It gives you a little map, and you lay out the floor tiles accordingly. You have a little deck of cards called the Encounter Deck, like little half-sized cards, and it tells you uh, to, cr- to construct a deck out of those using a specific number, which is based on player count, and you deal those out into the various rooms of the, uh, of, of the map that you've made. So each time you play, the map is full of different things, mm. because we really wanted this kind of replayability to be a thing. Um, then it will tell you how to set up the, uh, the deck of doom, which is a deck of cards you draw every turn and events come in. It tells you where to put uh, markers on various tracks and you'll set up. And then, yeah, and eventually it will say, here's some color text. You can now begin. Uh, so then, it's, it, it, it's fairly straightforward. Yeah. And then each one of the cards in turn might have either an evolution of the story. It might add in more rules and it'll tell you when to flip. Like the deck of doom will be uh, not deck of doom. My apologies. Case file deck. The case file deck will have like, a, you know, flip this card now if this thing happens. So you can only trigger the next thing if, if you do some key element of the story. Yeah. And sometimes some of them will go into play and say like, oh, put this card in play, flip it if this thing happens or flip this card if the impending doom trap reaches seven or whatever it might be so there are like these little triggerable events which it, it's nice it feels like the the game is 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 waiting for the players it's reacting to what the players do mm, absolutely and uh what i really loved about the 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 case file deck was that it it gives you a lot of flexibility as a designer to layer in different thematic like gameplay elements depending on the story that you're playing through and it's yeah. a joy each when one's I was different writing. and each one's a surprise yeah right? and 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 also like different things that you do you can literally play through the same case file and because it some of the different events trigger off of things that happen if those things happen at different times that impacts things things might never happen you might actually achieve the thing that it needed you to do when you didn't before so actually those case files aren't like a rigid story that you have to play through they give you options and interesting decisions as a player as to how to play the game um, yeah. and how to solve that case. So I, I'm really pr- proud of that as, a, as an element and it gave us a real joy of uh, a development challenge to, to, to come up with new and different things on how to use those. That is so cool. What made you decide to go uh, with like the case file cards versus like a booklet or something for these scenarios? Because I know a lot of games kind of go with like the spiral bound or just like more of an RPG style where you turn the page to whatever number. Yeah, I think I think masochism mostly. No, <laughs> oh, I, they, they were. I mean, those things are hard to design because there's all these different moving parts. When you have like a, a book, say for example. Um, okay, here we go. So I did a game for Games Workshop called uh, Warhammer Quest Silver Tower, which shares a lot of design DNA with Hellboy, a lot of similar elements. And that does have like a book full of paragraphs and then a card deck that combines different ways. But what we found was with the booklet, once you turn a page, that information is gone, right? So you can only have one page in play at a time. With cards, you can say, put this card uh, into the in-play area. This card is now in play until it's needed. Or take this card and put it in, in, on, on, on the board in this room as soon as a player enters this room flip this card you can do a lot more with cards and because cards are double-sided you've got the whole thing you know you can have something on one side with a secret on the back that is revealed at a certain point um you can just i, I think we're always keen to be creative in compromise so we mm. like to not use too many components and make each component do like its real share of the work and having cards lets you do a lot more than you can do otherwise 
Yeah, and I also think that James is giving himself a bit of a disservice here because James's particular skill is making games very modular. So, and when we say modular, we mean like how can you swap out different elements so that the game is replayable, so you can add things in, so you can take things away, so that, you know, just by replacing the case file and nothing else, you get a completely new game experience or by keeping the case file but changing, like, I don't know, the enemies, uh, then again, it's a different gameplay experience, uh, you know, and you can keep doing that and either having everything that's new or, or just single bits and that is a thing that I think James you're particularly good at sort of spotting those bits on how to to break up a game into its components so that you can have a really flexible gameplay experience while keeping the core of the system um, oh, so you. I think that the case file is is a really great example of that sort of design decision to to be able to future proof it for expansions we never realized that those expansions would have to be written immediately after the kickstarter to such an extent so it was great that you did it yeah um it was great that you did it, but the intention always was, well, if we want to expand this in the future, how would that happen? And having that yeah. idea from the very core inception of the core engine, rather than writing a complete game and then trying to tack things on. And I think that's a yeah. really key difference between some of the games that other people design. I'm not saying that's a bad thing or not, but like, and what a needy cat game generally approaches is we're always thinking about from the very core of the idea how do we make this replayable and interesting multiple times? Yeah, oh, that's so cool. So I'm guessing that's where like the modular boards came from is also the same vein. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, it gives you, you know, having, having a modular board, it lets, I mean, yes, it means you have to spend a little bit of time to start setting things up. And that, that's the thing. So what you have to do is you have to make sure that that time is, is worth it from the player's point of view. So all the time they're, they're spending setting up and not actually playing, I need to feel, well, this is worth it. And I think having a modular board with, especially with the really pretty artwork we've got on it, which is based off the Mike Mignola style, um, it just gives you the freedom to do interesting things. For example, in one of the expansions, um, there's a minor spoiler here. Here we go. Um, as Sophie was saying, like, you know, she introduced loads of interesting different mechanics and different things. In one of the expansions, there's a chase sequence in one of the cases where you're trying to get away from a huge, like, unstoppable horde of enemies. And the way it's represented is... You have this long board, but sections are removed from the back as each round, representing that kind of falling to this enemy horde. And so you have to keep moving, otherwise the, the board, you know, the horde catches up with you, the board disappears. And that was a really cool idea because it means that it's very visual, right? You can see the board disappearing behind you. You've got to keep moving. So, yeah, yeah it, it just opens a lot of things. We always like to um, install lots of um, like hooks and levers, we call them, you know, things that you can kind of hook some other mechanic into or a lever that you can pull with something else to make it make it do an interesting thing and as Sophie said we try to build as many of those into the base game as possible so that we can play with them in expansions and modular things modular boards that's just one great way of doing that and I think it's important as well to say though that you have to temper that with player experience like having 27 different decks that you all have to set up and stack in specific ways is just too much and too overwhelming for a player so that takes a lot of testing and it's it's just it's that kind of time time dedicated to just playing it over and over again with as many different people as you possibly can to get the balance between uh, enough hooks and levers that you've got that flexibility built in but it's yeah. not too overwhelming for the player that puts them off of playing and that their out the box experience is enjoyable still and that was something that we put a lot of time into right at the start of the project for sure did you always know that this was going to be a co-op game 
Yes, 100%. Um, this was from one of the early meetings I had with Mantic, where we discussed how they wanted to do it. I mean, the original, their original plan was something a lot more um, conservative, I think. They didn't want that they, we went way wackier than they initially like asked us to, but you know, they were fine with it. They were like, well, if, if you want to do that, that's great. They had um, some existing games where you had like, it's kind of a one versus many, one person controlling all the bad guys. Um, yeah. And then the other players working together, which is kind of a traditional way of doing things. But I've, I've never liked those because I, I tend to end up just by default, because it's usually me to learn the game. I end up being that one player and it's quite a lonely experience, right? <laughs> and, yeah. Or you put the person who plays games the most in that one yeah, position because yeah. if they mess it up, the whole game's messed up. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, and the thing is, even in a game where it's adversarial, so we, we, we played quite a bit of, um, Descent Second Edition, which is a game by Fantasy Flight. Like a, that is a classic fantasy dungeon crawling game. And in that, you have like an adversarial games master type player. The problem is that you, if the game is written and designed for that person to be playing to win, you have lots of sneaky tricks you can do and things, whatever else. But even if that is the case, if you've got four players, four friends sitting around the table, you're pitching your solo enjoyment against the enjoyment of four of your friends. You're going to kind of pull your punches occasionally, or at least you're going to feel like you should. And so you end up kind of playing against the way the game is designed. So I, I just feel like, it's nice to have games where it's fully cooperative, especially with this, because we wanted to represent, you know, there's a lot of uh, like unity and a, a strong bond, a family sense in the Hellboy stories between the members of the DPRD. And we wanted to do that. Also, a lot of the enemies are like these inscrutable beings from beyond the stars. Let's not put someone in that role. Let's keep that inscrutable. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For sure. We made a lot of design decisions as well to preserve that co-op experience all the way through. So like one of the biggest and one of the first big, uh, conversations we had after we designed the core system about expansions with Mantic Games was they were like, oh well, could we add like a fifth or sixth player? Mm. Is that because that's like a kind of a no-brainer expansion you get in a yep. lot of games? Yeah, and we were like, no, because that changes the co-op experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the dinner party plot problem about uh, if you have four people in a dinner party, everyone will have like one big conversation, but the moment you go to five people, that will break into two or three smaller conversations like yeah. all, you, you never get a, all everyone of, or at least not for very long like all talking together and so we didn't want the game to devolve into lots of small different like strategizing conversations where everyone's like no 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 my idea is better we wanted it to be fully collaborative and we and tried it meant- we tried we tried a fifth player and it just ground to a halt because suddenly oh, there's yeah. two conversations happening and the game ran so much slower it was, yeah, it was because, quite weird to watch how quickly it happened. Oh, and it was like, it wasn't just a little bit slower. It wasn't like one person's turn worth of slow. It was like hours and hours slower because they'd be like, no, we've discussed this and we think this. And those arguments would rumble on for hours and it just became less fun. So we were like, no, we need to preserve the co-op experience. And that means we need four players or like one one to four, really, because I suppose you, you can play it single player. But like we didn't yeah. t- to go over that because we didn't want that 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 to be soured by forcing you to somehow try and maintain that conversation it's just not human nature to do it in that way so we wanted to to make it feel as natural uh, as possible having those conversations no that totally makes sense and that's honestly a good argument for not going over the four player because i definitely have like argued the opposite direction where it's like (laughs) let's add a fifth player because i'm one of five like i have parents and two siblings so Mm. i'm always like yeah "Yeah, i want a game of five but this makes complete sense um, how did you two end up with Manic Games working on this? Was it something where you designed a game and pitched it to them? And they're like, oh, you know, we have the IP for Hellboy. Like, how did that story go? 
Um, so I'd worked for Mantic for just under a year as a community manager back in like 2014 or so, so several years before. I then left to go and work for Games Workshop. So, I mean, it was, uh, you know, there, there was no bitterness, of course, uh, but I'd gone to their sort of big rival and had gone to work on. But certainly when I left Games Workshop and, um, you know, they knew I, I was, I was like, I mean, Mantic are about a five minute drive down the road from us. They're very, very close to us. And when they heard that I was freelance and I was interested in designing games, I'd actually, I'd reached out to them and said, hey, hey guys, how are you all doing? I haven't seen, seen you for a while. Do you want to collaborate on anything? And they said, actually, yes, we've just picked up the Hellboy license. And I think a lot of people assumed because the Hellboy movie, the, the, mo- the more recent movie with David Harbour came out very close to the board game. And people assumed that it was to do with that, but it wasn't. It was um, Rob, who uh, works in Mantic, who coordinated the whole licensing thing. He's been a big Hellboy fan for years and he'd, been speaking to Dark Horse about doing a Hellboy license, and they, we only found out during development that there was a movie coming out coming out at the same time. So they had this IP; they were planning a game. They'd sculpted a bunch of miniatures for it because they always start with that earlier. And they said, "Well, would you be interested in designing it?" And yeah, I mean, as I say, originally the plan was for them to do something a bit smaller than what ended up being being you know the thing. And uh, but we were we were there from the start, so it wasn't a thing where we went to them with a the game. They very much commissioned us, which is how probably like eighty percent of Needy Cat Games stuff happens, if not more. Yeah, we, we get have approached. A, yeah, we have a different um, sort of approach to that than, uh, like, I would say ninety nine percent of uh, sort of designers out there do because we kind of, as as James says, very rarely actually pitch games. We te- we tend to concentrate a lot on our networking and making it people aware that we are available for commissions which means that what we get is a lot of companies who approach us going we've got either this specific miniatures range or we've got a concept for a game or we want something that fills this particular niche or fits into this uh, ip and we want to commission you to make a game to our specifications which very few people do and what it means uh from a sort of business perspective is that it's less about the luck of hopefully my game will be pitched at the right time when they happen to be looking for a game that's the same shape as my game to fit into that slot it's very much of we will design the game you ask us to make um, and we'll make yeah. it as good as we possibly can but you tell us that you've got these requirements you know x y and z has to have these things included okay we'll just make a game that, that does that thing um, which is quite different to a lot of people in the industry at the moment yeah i've always felt like i've kind of come at it backwards and weirdly danielle when we were first talking when i was mentoring you i feel like i learned a lot about pitching from watching you go through all of it because it wasn't a thing that i'd really done much before yeah it's so funny because i've actually pivoted more towards what you do yeah and i designed specifically like at my last two companies i was a part of design studios similar to needy cat games where a publisher came up and was like we need x and y and then i'm like yeah. okay cool here you go here's the dna for this game mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's a whole different experience to the kind of the standard uh which you've also been through you know the i've designed games i now want to get them published yeah sort of and you go pitch, it's a pitch, whole pitch, different world yeah reject after rejection yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> very different higher success rate in actually getting something printed the direction you guys move mm. definitely well and also like from my sort of less I wouldn't say less passionate. I'm really passionate about what I do. I absolutely love my job. Um, and I think it's the best job in the world. Um, but like my less personal maybe uh, approach to it is I love having design constraints. It makes it so much easier to do designs because if it's just like, I want to make a game and someone just says, yeah, make a game. 
what? Where do I start? How many players? <laughs> yeah. Give me a game. game. Give me some components. Yeah. Give me a price point. What am I yeah. working with here? <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, and it's so much easier when people tell that to you. You don't have to decide anything. You're just given like a roadmap and then you just have to fill in the gaps. Now, obviously, that's the big part of the job, but it's so much easier to have those constraints in place in the first time. And we actually advise people that if they want to design their own games, they should write their own brief before they start if they're able to because it gives you that artificial kind of constraint in which to work. But, you know, I, I love it. I love doing it that way. Uh, so it's, it is a bit of a different route. That is so amazing. So how was designing for an IP? Were you familiar with the hobby lore prior to the game? Uh, so, I, yeah, go on. Go, oh, okay. Yeah. So, I uh, yes, we, I was... I was aware of it. I'd read some Hellboy comics, but like in a kind of passing familiarity way. But we made it very much our mission to become pretty deep, like experts almost on all Hellboy lore pretty quickly. I think between like James read every single comment the comic that has included any BPRD character. That's quite ever. a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I I read most of it. I don't I don't think I went down quite the rabbit hole. James, I was did, kind of. Like, I was pitching you like you'd go okay, right. You're doing this expansion, so read this, 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 and this, and then you'd mm. go and do a deep dive on that thing. There's there's a quote I read, and I'd love to know who it was that said it, but it was, it was from a, an investigative journalist who said, "When you're reporting on a story, you become the world's greatest expert on that story until you hand it over, and then it all just leaves your brain." Mm. And that's kind of that to me. That was like the Hellboy experience. Like I was similar to so I'd read a few comics in, in passing. Uh, back in these early noughties, I'd kind of got into the current storyline and then I'd, um, you know, not come back to it. And then suddenly I had this, I had access to it because we got given a, a login to Dark Horse online with all the Hellboy comics on it. I was like, well, I'm just going to read everything here. And yeah, that was a deep dive and I was just spending all my waking time. And I felt like I knew everything about Hellboy for the nine months we were working on it. And then after it, like now I can't remember half of it. It's, it's, it's just gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But like we'd worked on licensed stuff before. I mean, because when I was designing games for Games Workshop, even though I was working on stuff which was, you know, it, I wasn't it wasn't technically licensed work, but it's still working within an, an existing IP, right? You're, you're playing to the rules of that IP. You're trying to hit the themes and the feeling. Um, and then Sophie, of course, as, as she said, worked in Games Workshop's licensing department. So you had a good knowledge of like what licensing needs to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, think we just carried that over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we um, we really wanted to bake the IP into the design as well. Like yeah. we, the moment we realized how great an opportunity it was, which was pretty much straight away, we were like, right, well, when you're playing Hellboy, it, you need to feel like you're Hellboy. That means when you hit something, it, it, it hurts a lot. You know, it can't just be... Uh, you know, a generic game with a with like some face paint on it. It has to be a Hellboy game through to the core of it, which yeah. meant we got really into like the deep lore. And I mean, like when I was writing all the Deck of Doom cards, I was literally going through every single comic line by line, like you know, every panel single panel, cell, yeah. and picking out specific pictures and being like, how could I embody the look and feel of this particular panel? in the set of rules that would make it feel like you were in this moment in the comic book. So we were really trying to like embody that IP. So yes, we were, we were familiar with it. We became pretty deep in it. And actually I think we did a YouTube video or something where we, when we found out that the, um, oh, when the movie Hellboy trailer came out, movie trailer yeah. came out and we went through and dissected it because like, there'd be a flash of something and we'd be like, Oh, that's oh, Baba Yaga's that house. From yeah. This episode. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's from this thing. And we this literally, issue took it each um each, each 
few seconds of, of stuff we were able to talk about. And now if we did that, we would just, we'd not be able to do it at all. I think Hellboy's the red one. <laughs> that would be kind of the level we're at now. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's so cool. And uh, before we started recording, Sophie, we were talking a little bit about how intellectual properties work. Would you mind just like talking a little bit about that? I know I stopped you before. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, it, working within an IP is always a big challenge because different uh, companies approach their IPs in d- differently. So you get some companies who are incredibly controlling and want to uh, change every other word that you're writing on, you know, in a thing. And they'll they'll want to review every single picture or every single concept that you have. There's others that don't mind and will just approve anything as long as it looks all right. Um, Timescales can be completely different per licensor, but also different licensors will give you permission to work with different bits of the IP. So we only had access to the comic books for Hellboy. We did not have access to the previous films, uh, the Ron Perlman films, and we didn't even know that the other film was happening until we saw the the, the trailers for it. Um, you know, we were strictly comic books. Um, but not only that, like other companies might say, you, you can make miniatures and a miniatures game, but the board game license is with someone else. Or you can make board games, but it must not have miniatures in it, which is where you get these really interesting situations where, you know, in... Back in the sort of 2010s, you had like the miniatures games for like Games Workshop, but then there was like a series of, I want to say Fantasy Flight games, which were board games, but they did not have complete miniatures. It's why they were all busts, because they could not compete with the stuff that Games Workshop was making themselves, right? Then you might have someone who allows you to make a card game, but not a board game, so there better not be a board in that box. Um, And there's, uh, there's a lot of like, obviously there's a lot of overlap and navigating the details of your license is incredibly like it's interesting but also very challenging but also they're never the same twice like even if you renew like you have a new agreement with the same person you've worked with for ages it'll be for a very specific new product they might be like okay you can make a board game which has miniatures in it but you're not allowed to make a miniatures game you know it's like they'll be you'll go right up to a line but you're not allowed to cross it and that is a a really big challenge and you need to be 100% clear on what you are and aren't allowed to make before you start making your games when you're working with licenses otherwise they just won't let you publish it and then which can be a problem it's the part that like no designer yes. goes into it thinking, I really want to get into like the nitty gritty of establishing whether my board game is a miniatures game because it has one miniature, miniature in it, you know? Mm. No one thinks of, of that, but it's a, such a big part of the job sometimes. Mm. I was going to say, was this game always intended to be a miniatures game? And I know specifically, James, you were working in it, same with you, Sophie, miniature companies, like... Why are miniatures important to both of you? I mean, so Hellboy was always pitched that way because, I mean, Mantic are a miniatures company first and foremost. That's their big thing. They're getting more and more into board games as the years go by. But they, I mean, like I say, they'd already started sculpting miniatures before we were brought onto the project at all. So that was always their plan. Um, I've always liked miniatures. I mean, growing up, some of the first, like, big board games we went into had, had, like, miniatures in them and stuff. And... I think I've just enjoyed, I don't know, I, why do I like miniatures? Sophie, why do I like miniatures? Uh, so uh, I, I always feel that like a miniatures game tends to, the reason for miniatures in games, and this is probably going maybe a bit too theoret- theoretical, the reason for miniatures in games is that they represent an actual character on the table, right? So like if you do things like, the reason why a lot of dungeon crawlers have miniatures is because like you need to know things like 
line of sight and what are they actually equipped with and where, where are they going and what are they doing and sometimes you can't actually reflect that with just tokens on a board although we're now getting into a place where you get these like really nice like acrylic standees that are like partially see-through and stuff like that which do really good jobs to replicate that but also there's the tactile nature of miniatures where you can um you know you can paint them you can sort of get to grips with their their personalities a bit more i think because they have a lot of personality the miniatures themselves well it's easy for a visual shorthand right like when yeah. when a, a miniature so we've been playing the new descent um the massive journeys in the dark I think, or legends of the dark and with that like when a new enemy comes out for the first time and you look at its miniature you think wow that's okay i've got a kind of an idea of what that's going to do and what it's going to be it looks like it's quite quick or it's quite tough or whatever it might be mm. and um yeah, it just kind of adds a certain something. I don't I don't think that all games that use miniatures need miniatures, and I think that not all games that use miniatures make the best use of them. But mm. when they're used well, they can really add to the, the experience with, with a specific type of game. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think as well, the, as you say, it's like that tone-setting thing, but it's the, it's the putting the the what's the word i want to say the ambiance into the game like it gives you that yeah. that's the the visual shorthand but also the 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 expectation on the player like if you're playing very obviously good guys there's an expectation of how you're going to what how you're going to make decisions if you're playing like i don't know like a gribbly troll you might choose to control your character in a different way and so the miniatures allow you to kind of embody the characters maybe a bit more i mean but that's just a personal interpretation i mean other people might go no i don't care it, it, a, a troll face drawn on a token does the same thing for me and that's fair yeah. as well you know i think miniatures also just appeal to a lot of people people like having miniatures in their collections and i think that the collecting drive should not be underestimated like just wanting oh, to sure. own something. the painting yeah, yeah yeah but just wanting to own it you see i don't think you always need to paint things i think people they're like that's like the secret hidden part of the hobby right you've got like painting building playing games and then there's the secret fourth one which is just like having having <laughs> yeah, owning and i think that's important to people and especially for some reason miniatures itch that they scratch that itch for them you know oh 100 and so switching back to how the game is played when you were designing or you chose the characters from the comic book but they're all asymmetric how did you go about that yeah uh, so that was kind of part of the core design it took a long time to get the characters right um the original like my, my original concept car pitch we often talk about this in these terms when you see like a concept car or like a high fashion runway thing um where, where a designer will do something that is completely wacky and out there and it will never be, you know, you'll, you'll never see the, the, the things you see in like the Paris catwalks with these ridiculous high fashion things. Those will never actually translate into actual fashion, but they're a way of kind of breaking down barriers and exploring new things. And we kind of want to do it with our games as well. So when we first designed the characters, our first intention was that each character will be completely asymmetrical. They will work in completely different ways there'll be no shared ground between them at all and of course that wasn't realistic but what it meant was it kind of gave us that drive to push the characters because i think one of the most boring things you can do in a game like this is have well these characters are all kind of the same but this one rolls one more dice for this particular thing you, you know you want to have more flavor than that right 
especially in a thematic game that is tied mm-hmm. to an IP like this. Oh, for so, sure. Otherwise, everyone's going to want just the one character and everyone else is going to be like, yeah, oh, those are booty. Like, we don't yeah, want this. Exactly. You want them all to have their own different things they can do. And even if you have a thing where like one's, well, this one's plus one at this, but minus one at that. This one's plus one at this, minus one at that. It's it's still not the most creative way to, to use them, right? So you want to have different things. And so with the, the kind of the four core heroes in the box, we thought, what can we do to make these feel different? Well, Hellboy is... Hellboy's got a lot going for him anyway because a lot of people want to play him because he's Hellboy because he's that character so he can be the most straightforward one of the bunch and he is the um, all of his abilities so each character is made up of, of, of three things really you've got a um, well four things you've got like a set of coloured uh, and shaped icons which represent the kind of this, the quality of dice they use for particular actions they've then got like a health track which is how many hit points they have nice and straightforward the real meat of it though is you've got some unique actions that only they can make and some like passive special abilities that that, that tie into things and all of hellboy's actions are about being like loud belligerent and punchy that's kind of his whole thing so he can throw furniture at people he can hit things really hard he can taunt people you know but then with like so liz sherman who's one of the main characters is she's a a pyrokinetic person she can make fire happen uh, mm-hmm. But she can't always control it in the part in the comics where this this game this version of the game is set. And so with her, you have kind of a push your luck mechanic where you have like a I forget what it's actually called like a like a, a pyrokinesis meter or something. And whenever you take damage or whatever, you can you can push it upwards. And when you want to, you can push it upwards. The higher it is, the more damage you do. But if it overloads, then you explode and everything around you gets gets hurt. And this was a whole thing where we wanted to just kind of build those ideas in. So each character is working with different mechanics. And some of this came out of playing games like um, uh, Space Cadets, where each person has literally a very different role. Or there's um, Vast, the Crystal Caverns, I think it's called, where you know one person is playing as a dragon, one person is playing as a knight, one person is playing as an army of goblins, one person is playing as the cavern. You know, I love these asymmetrical yeah. kind of experiences. And we wanted to bring that in. And I think, I think it's kind of worked. I mean, Sophie's the work you, you did with the expansions, you put so many cool different ideas in for characters. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it was just to sort of try and push the uh, the use of the mechanics to their absolute limit, you know, double down on if this one's a combat character, what does that mean if they do nothing but combat? Let's have a really extreme character who can do nothing but investigation, and they but they do it really well. What what does it look like when you do a more neutral character? How, how can we still make them interesting? But also, I think... I think a really key element to this was that we sort of started at a really extreme space and then we tested it and played it and played it and played yeah. it and sort of brought it and 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 just chased the fun like as you played it you're like oh what's the most satisfying bit well the satisfying bit is when I talk to you in a conversation and we plan that we're going to alternate our actions so that we can do this like combo so actually we need to pull that back from being a bit less extreme so that we can chase the fun do the fun thing which is to work together more and so actually it kind of evolved over time based on the fact that we were able to um, get a bit more synergy between the characters. Um, so it wasn't like we sort of decided a lot of that at the start. It was sort of it was a long expanded. process, right? Yeah, and then and then we kind of went the opposite way with the expansions and just went, okay, what what does it mean if you're playing? I don't know. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head anymore. Um, <laughs> you know uh, the. <laughs> The ghost. I'll tell you, tell you what's remember. a great example. This actually wasn't even written by us. So uh, 
our friend Edwin stepped in and wrote the uh, the Hellboy Mexico expansion, which absolutely includes, amazing expansion. Really, there's a trio really of luchadors, and he did this whole thing where with them they all have like all their abilities just to do with fighting because they're they're wrestlers. That's their big thing, but yep. it, they have lots of abilities which let them do the stuff that other characters could do, but through fighting. So one of the things that you can do is investigate and, and gain knowledge. So one of them has the ability to like interrogate bad guys by pummeling them. You know, and it was <laughs> nice. it was awesome because it was like thinking out of the box, but also like he did a load of like ways to make them work together in in, in synergy because they're, they're a trio of brothers who wrestle together. And mm. yeah, I mean, there was all these. Again, but again, it goes back to what we said earlier because we put those hooks and levers in early on. There's lots of space to really make the characters feel unique. Yeah, and and that's the thing is that as you write more and more content, and if you're doing expansion after expansion, you kind of have to interrogate each element of the game and go, how can I make this interesting without it getting overwhelming? And I did the same with the dice. You know, there was a point at which one of the expansions I sort of changed the way you use dice. So instead of always rolling them to just do your attacks and things, there was then a, a randomization character characteristic where you rolled a dice and depending on the symbol you got, different things happened. And that was sort of a unique to that expansion. It gave that expansion a bit of a tone shift, a bit of a flavor to it, and kind of interrogated a new part of the game rather than just adding more cards. It was about how do we use the dice in weird and wonderful ways. Um, and so I think that's a really good kind of, again, it's a lever to pull, which we hadn't really thought about when we first decided designed the game, but because we built in that modularity, we were able to go back and look at those elements. That is very cool. So how do you typically use the dice as far as like the combat goes for your game? So people know what the base level was. Okay, yeah, so, so yeah, go good, ahead, James. So. Yeah. I'll trust you. <laughs> uh, so you generally, you're generally rolling a set of three dice uh, for anything you do. So you've got, um, uh, well, four colors of dice in the game. They're colors, they've got symbols, so we're all colorblindness friendly to make sure it's nice and uh, straightforward. Basically, you have a um, like really weak dice, medium dice, strong dice, and then super strong dice. And they've got um, you know an assortment of dots. You're trying to roll certain numbers, basically, two things. You roll the dice. You roll three of them at a time, so three yellow dice, for example, with, with, with um, say, it's Hellboy shooting. He's not a very good shot. So you roll three yellow dice, and you throw in one additional one, which I believe we called the, is it the dice of doom. We use the word doom a lot. Um, yeah. I forget what it was. There's a blue die which has a load of special icons on, and that really is just to kind of mess with the bell curve and make interesting things happen. So that one of the faces lets you double any single dice in the roll. One of them is a skull. It means that you completely fail. Bad things happen. Uh, one of them is like a special symbol which lets you trigger unique abilities. And then that, so that's the main mechanics. So you're rolling your three dice of the appropriate color plus this other dice, but you also have the ability to upgrade dice by either spending additional actions or other people in your area can spend actions to help you out so you can kind of mm. buff your friends. So even if you are not great in a fight, you are just as good at helping someone else out as anyone else is. So like the in an investigation, the fighting characters kind of support in, you know, in a fight, the investigative characters support. Um, mm. and that's, that is so cool. Yeah, it's, it's a fun way to kind of keep it interesting, you know? Yeah, and really like folding into the co-op. Yeah, and it, and it also means that if you're a non-combat character, because you always have that element in like any kind of cooperative board game a lot of the time, yeah. um, you're not just, oh, I'm the less interesting character because I'm the, not the one doing the combat. Because combat is always the focus of most of the, well, not always, but it's often the Anytime focus. you've got miniatures on a board, there's combat, right? Because yeah, that's exactly. Why you have and that becomes the yeah. focus of the game. And then you just get a less interesting character if you can't do combat very well, where we try to make it so that the investigation was just as important as the combat and that it still was essential for everyone to work co-op 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 co yeah. i believe in you <laughs> 
um, cooperatively, there we go, hey. um, to, to do the investigations just as much as the battles. That's amazing. And so what made you decide to remove the player elimination? And for anyone who hasn't played the game, what did you replace it with? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that sucks is sitting out of the game, right? Especially a game that's long. So if I'm playing a game that t- takes 20 minutes, I don't mind it if 10 minutes in, I, I get knocked out. You know, I'll happily sit and watch the rest of what's happening. A game of Hellboy can be an hour to an hour and a half to two hours for some of the really long ones. You don't want to have a situation where one player is out. So what we have instead is if a character gets like runs out of health, they get knocked out and they're removed from play temporarily. Um, and they come back in as soon as um, like all the bad guys have been cleared from the board. You can basically you can do a thing called taking a, a respite where you, uh, you, you advance that impending doom track so the clock ticks on, but uh, you have to do it if anyone's knocked out. You, you know, get all your characters come back if they've been knocked out, they heal a bit. And also it lets you do things like, we kind of pictured it as when you play D&D or something, yeah, you have combat rounds and then like there's more freeform time. So the, the respite represents the characters taking the time to look around, look at clues and things. So you have to do a, a few cool things, but it comes to that cost of like, you know, the doom clock ticks along. So what it means is that you, no one is out of the game forever. You might be knocked out temporarily. If all, all of the characters are knocked out at the same time, that's it, game over, but then you skip to the confrontation um, and you start as a disadvantage, of course. But it means that you're always waiting for your chance to come back in. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm ne- the only time you can actually be completely wiped out is during the big boss battle at the end. At that point, you've got maybe 15, 20 minutes of gameplay left. Um, so, and, and if one of you gets knocked out, chances are it's not going to last much longer. So yeah, yeah we were yeah. really keen to make sure players were invested and involved all the way through. Very cool. All right. So we talked a little bit about the combat, but what did looking for clues look like in the game? <laughs> so that was a thing that, well, again, we always wanted it to be in there because, you know, Hellboy is not like, I think that the movies definitely went a bit more action heavy than the comics. Yeah, the comics can be quite introspective and quiet at times. There are whole stretches in the comics where it's very much about you know hellboy getting sad about who he is rather than you know dealing with his problem with, with, with violence um but whatever the case we wanted that to be in the game and so there was always this idea of like well the players need to be doing something other than just moving through punching monsters and collecting stuff what is it they're doing and so we have these kind of um, clue tokens that appear in the, in the room as you explore. So you open the door to a room, you flip the card that's in there, and it will tell you what is in each of the areas in that room. And again, this is randomized each time you play, so every time you play is different. And it might be some combination of monsters, of, uh, of you know, clue tokens, points of interest, which tie into those case file cards. But a clue, the idea is that there'll be these little tokens, and it's something which gives you information about whatever it is you're trying to do. So the, 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 the first... Uh, mission you play the tutorial mission if you like you're trying to hunt down this gigantic uh, you know anthropomorphic frog monster and the clues represent you know that's you trying to track it down follow it to its lair um and but to make sure there's an interesting interplay between that and the combat you it's it, the dice roll has penalties because dice can be uh penalized as well as given bonuses they can go down right as well as up it's more difficult to investigate if there are enemies in the room with you now, this leads to some really interesting stuff in the game. So some of the characters um, have abilities. So for example, Hellboy has an ability, which is when he hits an enemy really hard, he can move them into an adjacent area because he hits them so hard they go flying. Uh, so you have some kind of crowd control options, which means that you can get to the point where in that, you know, you're having a discussion about the term. Well, if you push the enemy out of this room, I can then have a better chance of scoring really well on this clue 
and getting, you know, advancing our little information track, show how much information we've got. If I can get two successes on that, then that will unlock this thing which we need. But if you can deal with that enemy first, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of, it leads into that interesting interplay. And so what you have is really people are playing different games. Like if you're playing Johan in the core game, who's like the, he's very much the investigation character. You will not really be in getting involved in fights much. You might occasionally assist to give that little buff to the dice roll. But generally you're looking for opportunities to get to those clues and move around enemies and coordinate with your more fighty teammates to help you do that. So it just feels like there's a nice interplay there, you know? Oh, for sure. I know when I was playing it, it was very interesting because I think we went with Hellboy and Johan also as our initial ones. Yeah, I was like heavy hitter and, you know, the smart one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And it seemed to work out. I did not die in the first round. But uh, (laughs) for you who's played through like many scenarios and cases because you created them, is there like a story progression through the cases? Like, should you be playing these in a specific order? No. So we, we were very deliberate about this. We, again, like with the five player thing, there was a lot of desire to add in like uh, character progression, leveling up, that kind of thing, because it feels almost like a no brainer in a game like this to let people level up their characters. The problem was we wanted it to kind of have that serialized feel because a lot of Hellboy stories, like even now the Hellboy, yeah, Hellboy is, is, is gone. The, the, the world ended, a whole load of things happened, but Hellboy stories are still coming out because what a fascinating character. And you dip into these little, you know, oh, this one time Hellboy went to Albuquerque and this thing happened. That's kind of what a lot of the comics are these days. And we thought that's a really nice way to do it. So we made each case file completely distinct. Um, There is no order you play them in. You can pick up the expansions and play those first if you want. I'd always recommend playing the core game first because the expansion stuff kind of tends to build on, you know, mechanically at least, on what's in the core game. So the basic experience is the most fundamental. But um, yeah, we never wanted to have any kind of sense that you're you're tied into a you know an ongoing thing also because these days there are so many games like that where you need to commit to playing you know once a week for, for five months to get to the end of the campaign and we didn't want to have that we wanted to have this it's a nice pick up and play game and so yeah there's no development also to be fair in the comics the characters have like growth moments for example so liz sherman learns how to control her pyrokinesis abe sapien literally evolves at one point but this is these are like big character moments of change beyond that the characters don't like have oh hellboy has now learned to punch harder you know hellboy now has a a new sword it's much more like on a case-by-case basis what we had instead is you have um, a requisition thing where you have a little deck of items and you spend you get a budget to spend at the start of a case actually we're gonna take some grenades and we'll take this and this and some first aid kits whatever else so you can kind of build to either supplement your team's weaknesses or really push and specialize in a particular way um and and yeah a lot of like the feedback from certain areas of the of, of the player base has been oh can we have like a um an ongoing system for you know leveling up characters and that it's like well if you want to design one go for it but that's not part of the design ethos for this game. So yeah, you're like, this isn't a legacy game. This is more exactly, like exactly. <laughs> I think not every game needs to be a legacy game as, as you know, not every game needs to be a miniatures game. Not every game needs to be a legacy game. You can have different types of things within the same realm. Oh yeah, no, I agree. Honestly, still one of my saddest moments of my breakup is I will never finish Machu Koro legacy. <gasps> I'm like, damn it. Legacy games don't always need to be a thing. Cause if you yeah. lose your group, you'll never That's finish it. it. Exactly. Absolutely. You've got to account for real life, right? When you're designing games. Yeah. Also with the expansions, are they standalone or do you need to own the base game? You need the base game. Um, There is, uh, let me think. So yeah, the core game gives you kind of all the stuff, you know, the expansions basically tend to bring in some new enemies, maybe some new heroes, 
some new case files, some more cards to add in. What is fun, though, is that the uh, – it's again, it's all very modular. So if you get all your expansions and you throw everything into, into the one box, you get all your deck of doom cards, put those all into one place, all your encounter cards, all your – you know, everything, all your equipment cards – if you if you do that and then go back and play the core game missions, let's say you play the core game mission, missions first, then you get all your expansions, add them in. Once you replay those core game missions, you're now getting little flavors of content from all those expansions in your core game scenarios. Because, for example, now there's a deck of Doom card which comes in, which introduces a new enemy, which is from that particular expansion. So you need to have the core game. But what I like is the way that the the expansions sort of bleed into it. You know, uh, you're not just oh. In, 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 in the expansion, in the Conqueror Worm expansion, you'll play the case files, and those case files use the new components. But other than that, you're not touching it. No, no. When you add that into your collection, if you want, you're then getting Conqueror Worm content in your base game. And all the they've all got little icons on. You can remove those cards out if you want to and keep them back in their expansions. But I know a lot of people who... Um, like people that have been playing it since it came out, they're still playing it. And what they're doing is they're playing the BPRD archives, making their own custom case files... And whenever they add a new expansion in, it just means there's more content, more stuff for them to potentially encounter. And they they really like that. That is so cool. I love a game that has high replayability, especially when it's a more expensive, like miniatures, it's going to be more expensive. So it needs to have that replayability. It can't be a one-time deal. I completely agree. I mean, growing up, I was always, you know, we were never in a position where I could get all the games I wanted. So every game had to be a considered decision. You know, I need to make sure I'm going to get enough out of this game for it to be worth the money I'm spending on it. And so I think that's that's one of the reasons why we design like we do. You know, we always want to put um, theme and player experience first and foremost, and we always want to make things replayable. So even like with Hellboy, where you've got, you know, a very limited number of scenarios, you can play those and they'll be different every time. Yeah, first time you play it, you'll get all the fun of the interesting twists and things that happen in the plot. But after that, you, you'll still get interesting surprises and things happening. So yeah, replayability is so key for me. I agree. All right, so going back to playing, we're playing the game. <laughs> we're maybe doing good or we're not doing so good, but now we're at the final confrontation. Yes. Can we go through how that works? Yeah. So there's a moment which is like, I think of it as the, it's like the scene change, you know? So, so let's say you've, you've gone to see a play and there's that moment like where the stagehands, you know, something dramatic happens and the stagehands come on and move some scenery around. Maybe the curtain comes down, maybe the lights, you know, drop and then it comes back up and it's a whole new thing and that was kind of how we wanted the confrontation to feel we wanted it to feel like there was a moment of like catch your breath with anticipation of what's about to happen and then you go into it so when the confrontation happens you will there will be a case file card in the in-play area which says the general triggers for the confrontation you know flip this if all the characters are unlocked uh, knocked out sorry flip this if the um if the impending doom track reaches this particular thing and then there will also be a case file card elsewhere saying uh if the heroes get to this room flip this card whatever the case the the confrontation is triggered and what happens is you have a little board called the hq board which is tracking the information you've gathered gathered it's tracking your impending doom that is flipped over so you remove everything from it from it you flip it over completely and you now have the confrontation board which has like the boss's health track and whatever else around it and it it, it meant to feel like like a sudden change of pace you know, certain things, like certain mechanics drop out, new mechanics come in. It is the act three of the game. And like I say, this is why it was really, yeah. really important that even if you get knocked out early, you still get to that confrontation because it is the big finale of the game. And generally, you know, you'll be given an objective. Sometimes it's kill all the enemies on the board. Sometimes it's get out of the board. 
sometimes it's like you know steal this particular thing and run away with it before you get caught whatever it might be something changes and that was i I like that when because it means the whole way through you're playing thinking right something's going to change at the end of this we need to prepare ourselves without necessarily knowing exactly what it is we're preparing for so you have to make sure you know oh we're we're checking all those clues picking up as much stuff as we can and what will often happen is you will gather, um, uh, like, I forget, BPRD tokens, they're called. And they're little, little tokens that you'll collect, for example, when the uh, information track hits a certain point. So you've gathered enough clues. You then get one of these little tokens. And those will have different uses in the confrontation. In one of them, the more tokens you didn't collect, the more health the boss has. In one of them, you can spend them to distract the boss, whatever it might be. Um, but it means the game just changes gear for that big finale. And it's it's generally quite a big moment at the table. Like During testing, we found that, Everyone got excited, especially that just that moment of like changing things around and moving components and flipping that board section. You're something's about to happen, right? There's that anticipation, and that that was really key for me. I do love that. I mean, because you're building this whole time for that last confrontation, mm. like any miniature game, any like superhero or comic book related storyline oh, yeah. tends to be the case too. I mean, that's yeah, absolutely a way to capture it. It's, yeah, I mean, and that was really key. I mean, it's one of the things that came in trying to think when it when it sort of came into development we always had the idea that it was on a timer we always had this idea of um the game has a timer and when the timer runs out stuff happens um we didn't hit on the idea of it always getting to confrontation until quite late on i think um but once we did it really felt like oh yeah this this feels right this feels comic book you know you get you want to make sure when you get to the last couple of pages of the comic something big and cool happens and that's what the confrontation is 100 percent. were there any other like changes that you made in the design that I don't know, you ditched or you're really happy you put in that we haven't talked about? There were so many. I mean, one of the biggest ones to me is um, when we were first talking about how the the game had time. Because again, we wanted to have this thing of like, as with a D&D game, you've got your action scenes and then your kind of more investigative scenes because that really felt like it was key to the Hellboy narrative. You want these kind of slow burn things followed by the big action things. So we knew we wanted to have like a some sort of time system. And we were thinking at first of like, um, do we have like a clock and do we have it so that when you uh, are in an action turn, it becomes very tactical and you can make little detailed movements on the board and maybe like the clock ticks along, like you've got, you know, one minute at a time. But then when you get into the investigative scenes, maybe it ticks along five minutes at a time, but you can do a lot more in that time. And we, were sort of, we, we really focused on this idea of a clock because of this desire to kind of have that, uh, you know, dichotomy, two ways of play. And we developed the idea of a clock so much. We had this clock face and we had like slots at three, six, and nine with cards in. So when the clock hit that point, a new thing would come into play. And we did loads of work. And then one day we just thought, hang on. I think it was because we were trying to find some graphics, like a picture from the Hellboy comics that we could use as the basis of the clock. And we realized that having looked through all of it, a clock appears in Hellboy maybe once or twice. Hellboy is not about clocks. And we had made the whole game about this clock. And it was like, we have missed the point completely. What are we doing? And yeah. it was a real kind of back to the drawing board moment. Interestingly, the clock then became the impending doom track. We un- sort of unrolled it and made it a-, a long track. It still has 12 spaces. And that's why it has 12 spaces, because it was a clock for a lot of the development. But um, it was interesting that we kind of, like the-, the HQ board was the clock board. And it's funny when you think, you know, from a player's experience point of view, the players were spending so much time looking at a clock why because hellboy isn't about clocks and once we kind of changed that it suddenly felt a lot more thematically appropriate it's interesting how sometimes you have to just take a step back right during during design and just go what am i doing and why (laughs) 
Oh, I totally agree. I was actually with my mentee from the mentorship program and they yeah. wanted to learn Tabletopia versus like Tabletop Simulator. Mm. And so the only game I had on Tabletopia was like curbside, but like the OG version. And then they saw what oh, the wow. current version is. It was yeah. so crazy, like a weird flashback. And I'm just like, yeah. wow, did I reboot the crap out of this game? <laughs> <laughs> do you ever like take time to go back and look over your old designs from like years ago? Do you I ever- do actually. I have a few of my like old school designs with publishers right now where I like gave it a year or I added a co-designer to like fix the problem it was stuck in um yeah actually quite a few of my old designs have been recycled and put into like pitching again this year like nothing goes away forever right I'm always telling people don't throw away your old designs just revisit them you come back exactly or you borrow a mechanic or just like a component that you liked and what will often happen is you'll see it and you go, actually, this game is terrible, but that one element is really cool. And you, it helps you identify what the good thing is. And you take that out and either rebuild that game around it or, like you say, put it in something else. I, I, I All my games are full of old ideas, <laughs> you know. Nothing wrong with that, honestly. Cause, I mean, Just because the idea didn't work for the specific game you're working on doesn't mean it won't work on a future game. I completely agree. Well, here, for Hellboy, how long for the base game do you think it took to go from inspiration to the publication of the game? Oh, wow. Um, so let me think. Let me get my timeline here. So it was so 2017 I started with the company. So Needy Cat started in 2017. But the following month, I had a meeting about Hellboy. And I think we started working on it like December of that year, around Christmas time. And then... We pretty much worked on it through 2018. At some point in 2018, the Kickstarter ran, but like we were working on the game through the Kickstarter. We put up um, like a midway draft. I mean, this shows you how much Kickstarter has developed in the last few years. You couldn't do this now, but we put an incomplete version of the game on Kickstarter. It had like a free downloadable demo, you know, template simulator. We were like, play it, tell us what you think, give us feedback. And we were taking that all on board. And then I think we finally handed it over early 2019. And then it was off to print and you know started heading out to people and things it was it was a long period and the game developed so much in that time it's probably one of the longer games we've we've worked on sometimes you know you have to rush something but this was quite a nice long development time and it was it was it felt like we really found our feet as a company with that especially you know working with sophie learning how how we work best together as a team and yeah I, i think we wouldn't be where we are now if it hadn't been for Hellboy. Oh, that's so cute. I love it. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. I mean, also just like when running the Kickstarter, just a question, did you have all of the designs that was going to end up on the Kickstarter, including like all the um, like stuff that you unlock, was that all pre-made or did you have a few things that you're like, crap, now we have to do this. Oh yeah. None of it was pre-made because the thing was Mantic weren't sure how big this was going to go. They, they, the last Kickstarter they'd done for a licensed project. This is the third licensed game they'd done. They did. Um, so when I was working for them, we did Mars attacks based off the old trading cards, not the Tim Burton movie very specifically. And this is where I learned okay. the whole way licensing works. It's not the movie, it's the cards. No matter how many people come into the Kickstarter comments and say they want a character in the movie, you can't put Tom Jones in the game. It's just not, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, so they did Mars Attacks, then they did The Walking Dead, which went very well for them. And then they did Hellboy. But The Walking Dead, even though it was a really successful um, game over time, because again, they had the comics license rather than the TV license. When it hit Kickstarter, it wasn't very successful. Like it, it funded... But not massively, yeah. not the hope, not the degree they'd hoped for. And so with Hellboy, they were like, "Well, we need to be careful here because we don't want to overplan, don't want to oversubscribe to things." So there were a lot of meetings, and I mean, and it was mantic around the Kickstarter. We were just kind of there on the sidelines, looking and watching that number climb up. But beforehand, we had a load of meetings where it was like, "Right, here is the core game. 
here is the core game one expansion. Here is the, the laundry list of if it goes big, we could do this, 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 and this. But we planned it all out in advance. We didn't design any of the expansion stuff beforehand. We just worked on the core game because then if it only just funded, that was it. Core game was there. We didn't have to rush through a load of other stuff. Um, but we'd kind of established, well, we you know here are the comics we want to focus on. Here are the miniatures we want to make. Um, here are the things that we can do if it goes really big. And it, they ended up with the Kickstarter. I think they did – they had to scrabble for like two last stretch goals. Beyond that, everything had been pre-planned. But it was like – it wasn't until it was unlocked that we were like, right, we better start working on that now then because, um, yeah, this now needs to happen. And, of course, that's when Sophie came aboard properly full-time and just – like plowing through writing expansions oh man yeah i've heard a lot of instances like that when it comes to kickstarter and i mean i'm happy to say even when i was just at gen con i saw your game and it's still <laughs> selling so that's great it's it, you know, it seems to be doing really well i mean also i think lots of things help but the box art really helps that kind of black box with the picture of hellboy in the front i love it, it you can you can instantly spot it i love seeing it in videos like if i'm on so i use i, I use tiktok quite a bit because i'm young and relevant and um I follow a lot of board game people and I'm always looking and you always see, Oh, there's Hellboy on this shelf. That's cool. It just really stands out. And I think that helps it. It catches the eye, you know? That's so true. Yeah. No. Cause I walk, I saw it as I was walking and we yeah. know that, well, you don't know cause you haven't been to Gen Con, but you know, going to any convention that it is very crowded and to oh, catch someone's yeah. eye is like yep. so important. Cause it's just so overcrowded with so many yeah. pictures and images. Yeah. And sometimes having just black or just white can actually help. Yeah, completely. Well, as far as the process of specifically Hellboy, what was your favorite and least favorite experience of this journey of this design? Oh, good question. Um, so I think probably my favorite experience was, I mean, it's always when, I don't know about you, but when, when I'm designing a game and developing a game, the point at which it starts feeling fun for other people. Like, so when you, you put the game in front of someone and then you stand back and you watch them enjoy it without you kind of running them through it, without you kind of doing things. So quite late in the, in the development process for me is when, you know, we've written the full rules manual, it's all there. And we ran a big playtest day at Mantic headquarters and we had like a room full of people, about 20, 30 people in playing games. And, and I, I just like slaved over making so many prototype copies of this game. You know, you can imagine the amount of sticking and cutting and gluing. And I never thought I'd use quite so much craft glue in, in, in my career, but here we are, you know. Um, and yeah. I made all these things and people were enjoying it. And yeah, there were notes and things, but people were having a great time. And that was so satisfying. And that's, that's such a reward to me. That's why I do it. Really. Um, okay. And now the flip side, <laughs> what was yeah. your least favorite for this design? So... Uh, I can mirror that. So the previous, well, no, the first playtest day we did at Mantic HQ was when I first had the, um, I can early, early, but I've still got one prototype of it left because it was so different to what ends up coming out in the end. But I had this, what felt like it was on the right sort of track, um, early prototype. And we had about a dozen people in maybe playing some games. And not to put too fine a point on it, it totally sucked. <laughs> like the, the designs didn't hold up and I'd, I don't think I tested rigorously enough. I'd made a load of last minute changes because I thought that that was, um, it need, they needed to happen. And of course it's so easy to do when you're designing a thing, you need to test stuff yourself before you put it in front of other people. That's just, you know, common sense. And I didn't, I made a load of last minute changes, put it out there. And then the day was just hell. Um, no pun intended. And mm-hmm. it wasn't fun. And I came out at the end of that thinking, what am I doing? You know, but I came at it with a whole, whole load of feedback. And so on Monday morning when I sat down, I was like, okay, 
these whole big things do not work. Get rid of those. These things, that's where the, the clock thing, I think was one of the points of the clock thing really came up. And this, this thing though, this thing was good. This idea, the idea of racing to get clues and information against time, that felt good. And so it was one of those things where it was rewarding and I'm glad it happened. But at the time it felt dreadful. Yeah, that happens. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always a good learning experience though. Absolutely. Beautiful. And then if you could offer one piece of advice to designers, what would it be? Play more games. Uh, play more games. Always play more games. Play your own games more during design. Uh, play other people's games. You need to expand your vocabulary. You need to become um, as knowledgeable as possible about what else is out there. Um, and I don't just mean play games that are like the games you want to make. You need to go and play everything. You need to become enthusiastic about seeking out new gameplay experiences um if you're someone who wants to design um tight little euro games go and play big expansive um thematic games uh go and play go and look at sports go and look at folk games look at how people play games look at video games look at app games look at what drives gameplay what people get excited about and the more of that you do the more easily you'll be able to kind of come up with ideas and think around problems that you hit during your design process, but also the more new ideas you will have because the more kind of fertile information you put into your brain, the more stuff you will create. You'll create interesting new things. And I think a lot of people, when they start designing, they think, well, no, now I'm a game designer. I'm going to design games instead of playing games. And no, to be a game designer, you have to be a voracious player of games. It's the same as if you want to like, if you want to be an author, you need to read a load of books, but also you need to study story. You need to study screenplays and uh, theatrical performances and all sorts of, because you need to get good at telling stories. Same thing here. You need to get good at knowing what games are and what games can be. I agree. Honestly, I've been really trying to push myself to play more and more games because sometimes you kind of get stuck with being too busy and you know, that's just an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have to tell myself like, no, you need to play games. And like, so, so, I mean, not so much now Sophie's doing another job, but like when we were both in IndyCat, we go, you know what, let's just spend this afternoon playing some games. Let's see what we haven't played recently. Let's go to a board game cafe and just pick up some of the new, new releases and see what's out there. And you haven't got to play a full game necessarily even, you know, just let's just try out this and see what mechanics this game's got. And uh, yeah, I think you have to, just, you have to never stop consuming games i agree i actually know some designers that instead of doing a book club they do a board game club where they oh, assign we're gonna play this game and then we're gonna like dissect it and talk about it that's and honestly part of me, i know part of me kind of wants to do it but i'm also like oh gosh that's just another commitment and i'm <laughs> yeah, so glad yeah. i keep adding yeah. too many commitments to my plate it sounds like the sort of thing i would love to have done you know i, yes. I, I love yeah. the idea of having done that <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's something yeah. that i'm gonna think about it i might yeah. do it i might make that my goal for next year <laughs> yeah absolutely well awesome and then for anyone who's listening right now uh sophie did have to drop out a little early that's why you've been hearing james answer these questions so i'm sorry we won't get to hear uh her answers but also uh james if you wouldn't mind are there any projects that fans should be looking out for from either you or from sophie that you know about oh let's think so uh what things can i talk about this is always the the, the mind field i'm in i'm sure you know this is like when you're like oh there are things i can talk about um so uh what, what am i doing what do i do for a living oh well, so uh so steel coliseum so we, we put a game on kickstarter earlier this year called steel coliseum which is a robot fighting game and uh we put it on kickstarter previously at robot fight club and then covid happens yeah and we put it back on kickstarter this year with a whole like, we had a budget behind it we, we partnered with a, a publishing house uh who have who gave us a budget for like artwork and again miniatures because hey why not um and yep. uh 
it's it's looking really good. We're, it's it's nearly the files are nearly all kind of ready to go after the printers and that. So that'll be coming out soon. That's getting a big retail release, which will be great. But that'll be the first time we've got a thing in the, in, in the shops, which is completely us. It's completely our IP. It's completely our design. Um, you know, Zatu Games have helped us kind of publish it, but it's very much our design, and that is so exciting. So keep an eye on uh, Steel Coliseum. Other than that everything else i'm working on is is either under wraps or too early to say anything interesting so um so watch this space <laughs> very cool and then uh sophie's new job that was yes. with morph Mo- oh my god modifius yeah modifius <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool. so they're a, a london-based studio that makes uh board games rpgs miniature games they do a load of stuff with big licenses so sophie's working with all sorts of fun things she's been working on um stuff that i can't talk about but go check out the <laughs> Modifius uh, website because they've got loads of things they're always doing. They've got an amazing range of uh, Skyrim and Fallout miniatures, which I think are really cool. I love those, both those games. Um, they've got like Star Trek role-playing games, they Conan, all sorts of – yeah, other stuff. I, I don't know. I don't know what is known and what isn't known, so I'm, I better stop talking at this point. No, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, just check out the website and yeah. follow their social medias, I'm assuming, and you'll know mm-hmm. what she's been working on. Well, awesome. Uh, for my last question then – I want to know if you could be the designer of any game that you currently aren't the designer of, which one would you choose? So, you know, occasionally you see an idea and you just want to give up now because you'll never have an idea that good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been there. Uh-huh. Yep. So you're mad because uh, you're like, I could have done this. <laughs> oh, like that is such such a simple idea and so utterly ingenious. Um, so I've worked in and around miniatures games and like war games and things, that sort of stuff for most of my life. and. A couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was because time has gone weird over the past couple of years, right? A game came out called Necro Molds. Have you seen this? Is that the one where you like squish together your molds? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so you yeah, get like, say, some like the Play-Doh, Play-Doh stuff. and yeah. you have a little mold and you make all your little soldiers out of these little like two-part casting. Like, you know, you push them together and you produce your things. And when they die in the game you squidge them with a different thing which then has a different mold in it. So the stuff you squidge them with then like now there's like a bug there or something whatever it might be it's like that is just absolute genius because as we said earlier miniatures are a tactile thing right people like picking up miniatures and playing around them make them out of play-doh you know and oh it's just incredible that the the doors that opens the things you can then do with it the fun ideas you can, you can play with off the, off the back of that are just oh it's just astonishing I, I i love the idea of that it's one of those things that's so left field there was someone a couple of years ago who did a um little kickstarter for a game i forget what he called it but it was basically it was another little war game and what was being sold was a bunch of add-on parts and you each got a potato and you stuck the parts into the potato to make a battle robot and i was like that is just the (laughs) coolest idea and it has that same sort of feeling of like that's just it's it's breaking the mold you know in such a cool way so so yeah i would love one day to have an, an idea any like even a tenth as creative as either one of those that is really cool okay <laughs> that's a solid answer yeah i haven't played the game but i definitely knew of it because a bunch of people post and were like yeah. oh my god I was yeah. like, that is cool okay <laughs> love that all right well sweet then thank you for joining us for this episode of game design unbox inspiration to publication episode 45 hellboy the board game and thanks again to you james and also sophie sorry that she's not actually here uh right now but for joining us and for anyone looking to find you where can you be reached online so uh needycatgames.com is like our, our website that's where most of our stuff is linked uh if you want to find me specifically i tend to live on twitter these days um 
at James underscore M underscore Hewitt. If you're feeling like that, uh, also at needy cat games is on there. And Sophie is on Twitter at Sophisaurus underscore Rex. If you go to the needy cat games, uh, Twitter, you'll find us both on there. All right. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can check out my Instagram and my Twitter under my username, Token Gamer, and that's spelled G-A-Y-M-E-R. Uh, thanks again, James, for joining me. And tell Sophie thank you. Give her a hug. Hopefully it'll I'll see be. you both in Europe, maybe, or you out here in the U.S. soon in the hey, future. It'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, we'll make it happen. <laughs> Great to speak to you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out NoDirectionPodcast.com. Join us next time. Thank you.